Would you turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 4? Last Sunday we looked at John chapter 3, well, we looked at an individual, Nicodemus, or Nicodemus as we say it. I was just, as I was thinking, and I've been thinking about this for some time, I didn't know that I was going to have these uh, last two Sundays, but I was thankful that it kind of opened up um, for me to be able to share about these two individuals because I've been thinking about them, and Jesus juxtaposition between them, playing off of each one of them. Oh, by the way, next Sunday, Pastor Tim is down in Morton right now with Carol. That's, that's like a four-hour drive. They drove down this morning. He's preaching there, and they will drive back. And uh, so just kind of keep them in your prayers, too. They will miss the potluck. I mean, what can I say? But he's got a servant's heart. But he will be preaching uh, next Sunday. And then Cliff Hoare is going to be here for two Sundays. Is that right? Two Sundays in November? Yeah. So I'm looking forward to that. Marilyn will still be here. But I get to hear him preach. As I was thinking about Nicodemus and then the, the woman at the well. And Jesus kind of in between these two diametrically opposed not opposed to one another necessarily, but in different stations of life completely. Uh, Nicodemus, as you know, as if you read about him or if you were here last Sunday, was not just a teacher of the law. He was the teacher with a definite article, the, the. In, in, in the Greek, it's a different word, but it is the definite article. He was the preeminent Rabbi. And he was a very powerful man. He was on the Sanhedrin. He was, um, so he had political power. He was a very wealthy man as well. Some have said he was probably the richest man in Jerusalem. I don't know where they got that, but I just know he was rich, he was powerful, he was well educated, and he is now coming to visit with this guy from Galilee. But he sees him as more than just some guy, some guy from Galilee. Because those who lived around Jerusalem, the Jews who lived around Jerusalem, looked down on, not just literally, but figuratively too, because Jerusalem was higher, then there was Samaria, and then there was Galilee. And the Jews that were in Galilee, you know, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? And look and see, no prophet arises out of Galilee, was their saying. And yet, Nicodemus saw something. He wasn't impressed by miracles. I mean, there were miracle workers all over the place. The Samaritans, they had their own magicians and miracle workers. Uh, You'll see that later on in, in the book of Acts if you read it. No, Nicodemus realized that the things that Jesus was doing and the things that he was saying answered scriptural prophecy. They were signs that he recognized, and so that's why he wanted to come to Jesus at night to get a special audience with him. But then this jarring word out of his mouth, Rabbi, where he calls Jesus Rabbi, where he says, we know 
And not just intellectually, but we perceive, we understand that you are a teacher sent from God because nobody can do these signs, not miracles, but these signs that you're doing unless God is with him. Well, we, we have Nicodemus who would normally you would think would look down on a Galilean. But then we have the Samaritan, and we're going to read John chapter 4 in a minute, but I just want to set this up. Um, the Samaritans were looked down upon by all the Jews, uh, by those who were further on in Galilee to the north, but especially by those who occupied the high place of Jerusalem. The Samaritans uh, were the remnant, the dregs of the ten tribes of Israel that had been taken into captivity by the Assyrians when the Assyrians con conquered them. I mean, of course, Judah and Benjamin were going to ha have their own experience. It would be with the Babylonian captivity. But what was left over of those that weren't removed had intermarried with people that the Assyrians had brought in because they didn't leave a land unpopulated. Uh, their mode of conquering was to remove most of the inhabitants and bring in foreigners so that the land would still be fertile, that would be taken care of, but now you have this mixed half-breed, and there was a competing religious system too. Because the Samaritans still had the scripture, but the scripture they had were the first five books. What the Jews would call the Torah, that was their scripture. And because on Mount Moriah, down in Jerusalem, is where the temple was built. They had their own mount. They had Mount Gerizim. And on Mount Gerizim, they had built a competing temple and to set this story up. It's really hard for us to get the flavor of this in, in our culture. It's Bible, Bible stories, it seems like all of these people lived a long time ago. They're all from a different culture. Therefore, it must all be kind of the same culture. Nothing could be further from the truth. Clarence Jordan, I think it was probably in the 70s, um, might have been a little bit before then when he started, but he's dead now. But he, he wrote a paraphrase of the New Testament called the Cotton Patch Version. How many of you have heard of the Cotton Patch? How many of you, do you have one? I couldn't find mine. Um, but it's still extant. It still exists in electronic form. But Clarence Jordan has Jesus um, being born in uh, Gainesville, Georgia. And he is raised in Valdosta. And the temple is not the temple. It's the first Baptist church in Atlanta. And it's not the Pharisees. It's the elders. And... It is the black village of Sychar. Well, Scripture, it's Sychar, but in Clarence Jordan's version, it's Sidecar. <laughs> to give people the idea, the flavor of the tensions, the religious tensions, and, and there were political tensions. There were even racial tensions, but the racial tensions were far less than the political, religious tensions that existed in that day. And to so much so, remember that in the temple in Jerusalem, there was 
a court, especially for the Gentiles. It was the first part where people could come in and meander around. It was called the court of the Gentiles. It was not a place where Samaritans could go. The Jews would have dealings with the Gentiles. They would have commerce with them. Of course, they always thought they were better than the Gentiles because they were God's chosen people, regardless of how they acted. Even though their actions were causing the Gentiles to blaspheme God's name, kind of like some Christians today, through their actions, are causing unbelievers to blaspheme the name of Jesus. We can lay that one at our own feet and repent if that's necessary. But the Samaritans, even the Gentiles didn't want to have anything to do with them, and definitely not any Jews. And that sets up, I hope that sets up our story. So here we are in chapter 4, verse 1, and let's pray actually before we get into this. God, I pray that you open our eyes and that we open our hearts and help us understand what is really happening here, what's going on, and then somehow translate that into our lives and give us eyes to see then our world the way Jesus sees our world and to see people around us the way he sees people. Create a clean heart in us by your spirit, I pray. In Christ's name, amen. Here we are in John chapter 4, starting with verse 1. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize, but his disciples did it, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee. So there is this uh, competition spirit within John's disciples and Jesus, you know, we don't need that. We don't need to have any competition spirit. I'm going to go back to Galilee. And when it talks about going up to Jerusalem or down to Galilee, understand we put our maps like this. You know, we have Galilee, Samaria, and Judea down here. Lay that map flat. And we have Jerusalem in the high country and then down to Samaria and then down further into Galilee. And the Sea of Galilee or the Lake Genesaret and then the Jordan River flows on down to the Dead Sea. Jerusalem's up here so you have to go down to the Red Sea. But there is a way to go to Galilee. There's more than one way. One way is to go through Samaria. Yeah, it's not exactly comfortable for the Jews to go through this, but they did. Most of the time, they would, though, go around, down to Jericho, down to Jericho, cross the Jordan River, and go on the east side of the Jordan River, recross back over into Galilee. Verse 4, but he needed to go through Samaria. Right away, that verse just stands out in my mind because why would he need to do that? Sure, it would take less time, significantly less time. And remember, they didn't have cars. Um, this was, and they weren't even riding horses or donkeys or anything. They were walking. That is, a, that is a long walk to go from Jerusalem down through Samaria and to go to Galilee. It's a lot further to go down to Jericho go across the Jordan, go up that side and come around. That's, that could add a couple of days to the journey for someone who's walking. Did he need to because he was tired? No. Did he need to because he was in a hurry to get to Galilee? 
No. He needed to because he had an appointment there, an appointment that was set not by him, not by his secretary, but was set by his Father in heaven. So he came to the city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground where Jacob gave to his son, Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Did they all go? John stayed with Jesus. It's possible there might have been a few others. How do I know that? Because John wrote this. John remembers this story. We'll find out maybe a little later why this story is a standout. Because John doesn't write down everything that Jesus did. He only includes certain things. And some of them are things the other gospel writers don't include at all. It wasn't something that was remarkable to them. This was so remarkable to John that he records it for us. Verse 9, Then the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you... Being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman. That's her words. The explanation that is given to us by John is, for the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. So there was two things here that were startling to her. First of all, she knew he was a Jew. It was startling to her that he would say anything to her that he would have anything to do with her. Because number one, she was a Samaritan. And number two, she was a woman. We, we don't necessarily understand that tension in our lives today because men and women talk to one another all the time, right? You're all, there's men and women mixed up together here in church. You know, there's some churches where they have the men on one side and the women on the other, right? And there are some churches, well, it would be in a Jewish synagogue of this time, where the men were in there and the women were way back there. So it's startling to her that he would talk to her and he would talk to her as a woman. Jesus said to her, if you knew the gift of God... And who it is that says to you, give me a drink. You would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. He's talking in the third person, but of course, he's talking about himself. He says, you know, if, if, if you knew who I am, if you knew who I am, you'd ask me, and I would give you living water. Well, that's kind of startling, too. Living water? What is living water? The woman said to him, sir... You have nothing to draw with because she's still thinking in terms of this earth. She's still thinking in terms of physical things. Where do you get water? Out of the ground, out of a well. But she sees that he doesn't have anything to draw. That's why he asked her for a drink because she has something to draw water out. Where are you going to get this living water? 
See, this is a spiritual thing again. In, in, our, in our first interview, this private interview, the first one we have recorded that Jesus has with Nicodemus, it's about a spiritual reality. And Nicodemus is, for all of his education, for not only the fact that he has spent his whole life studying Scripture, but supposedly has a relationship with Yahweh, he's still thinking in terms of earthly things. How can I go, how can I go back on my mother's womb and be born again? This just it doesn't make sense. And Jesus is saying, you must be born again. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Trying to bring Nicodemus out of the, out of the bookishness and into the spirit of the book. It's easy for us to get lost in Bible study without being impacted by the Holy Spirit of God. There are a lot of people that have gone to Bible school and have gone on then to seminary than have gone on then into atheism. It's a sad fact. I'm not saying, by the way, don't study your Bibles. You know that's not what I'm about. I want you to study the Word. I want you to know what you believe and why you believe it and be able to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. But I want you to have a spiritual appreciation for what the Word is doing in your life because it is the sword of the Spirit. And it brings spiritual life into us. And so she's thinking, how's he going to get this living water? It sounds pretty good. You know, better than dead water. I'd like to have that living water. Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well and drank from it himself as well as his sons and livestock? Jesus answered and said to her, whoever drinks of this water, this water, this physical water, hydrogen and oxygen, H2O, will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up to everlasting life. What a wonderful promise he is sharing with her. A promise he shares with you and I too. If we drink of this water that he offers us, this living water, this spiritual water. And where are we going to find this living water? Right here. Right here. In God's word. If we drink this in, not with our head, but with our heart, it will be a well of water springing up out Remember I told you, I think last Sunday, that after I accepted Christ as my Savior and what he had done for me, after I became a Christian, however you want to couch the terms, what I wanted to do more than anything was tell other people about it. I wanted to share what had happened to me. Being raised in a Mormon household and 
all the time we would get to stand up and give our testimony, which was just us saying not what God was doing in our life, but repeating the words that we were supposed to say about Joseph Smith and the Book of Mormon, as though our saying it made it true. Now I had a relationship with God. I mean, I, didn't under, I hadn't read the Bible. I didn't know all that I know now about this truth. But something had changed in me. Something had happened to me. There was something inside of me that wanted out. And I remember telling uh, Marilyn's grandmother, I said, I need to go back to the Mormon church and give my testimony. I've got one now. And she wisely said, probably not. You know. <laughs> okay. So I went and told everybody else. I would tell anybody I could get to listen about Jesus. Why? Because there was living water in me and it couldn't be contained. It had to get out. The woman said to him, verse 15, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst nor come here to draw. If she would have just said, I want that. I want that. But her reason for wanting it was the problem. I don't, I don't want to have to come out here and draw water out of this. Well, man, if I just... Running water in the house? That's how Clarence Jordan kind of captures it. Yeah, I'd like to have running water in our house. That's not what he's talking about. And why did she have to go out there to Jake's well anyway? Why was she out there by herself? Why wasn't she in there in Sychar with all the other women at the well that was in town? She was an outcast even among her own people. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. Now how in the world did he know that about her? Remember John chapter 2, at the end of John chapter 2, that Jesus knew what was in all men and women. He knows what's in us. And he didn't need anybody to tell him what was going on in the human heart. He knew what was in Nicodemus' heart. He knew what Nicodemus needed. He knew why Nicodemus had come to him. It wasn't to trip him up with some kind of question. But Nicodemus was thirsty. And he sees this lady, she's thirsty. This is why he needed to go through Samaria. You don't have to go through Samaria. There's other ways to get to Galilee. But not if you're going to talk to a woman at a well, and not if you need to talk to her at a certain time of day when she will be there. No accidents with God. God's timing is perfect. The woman answered and said, I don't have a husband. Jesus said to her, you've told the truth in saying I have no husband. For you've had five husbands and the one whom you now have, the one that you're living with now, is not your husband. In that you spoke truly. You've had five. He doesn't tell us. John doesn't tell us. Doesn't elaborate on why she had five. Was she widowed five times? 
Was she divorced five times? Was she put away five times? And now she's shacking up with a guy? Now, what would a religious person say? What would be one of those elders from First Baptist in Atlanta say? I'm sorry, but I can't help you. Jesus isn't that way. And neither should you be if you are a follower of Jesus. And then she tries to get religious. This this is almost funny if it weren't tragic, what comes next. Instead of saying, do I still get the water? She launches into this. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. No kidding. It's like, really? That was, that was a good guess. But then she says, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, Mount Gerizim. And you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. Bringing up now some kind of a religious argument, a religious diversion. So Jesus could have said to her, well, yeah, just give me some of your water and I'll be on my way. Could have blown her off. Have you ever had somebody that you were trying to share a spiritual truth with? And they threw up a religious argument. You've got a choice. You can get into that religious argument with them, which is a rabbit trail that will lead you away. Or you could just say, yeah, you know, I don't have time for this. Okay, just think and believe what you want. Or you can persist and you can try to drive in to what the real need is. Don't get caught in the argument. Don't give up. If God has an appointment for you to talk to someone about their spiritual need, how can you leave that appointment just hanging? Jesus said to her, woman, believe me. The hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain, Gerizim, nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. It's not about Herod's temple in Jerusalem. By the way, that's not God's temple. That's Herod's temple. And it's not about the temple that you built in in Gerizim as a competing temple. You are worshiping what you do not know, and they didn't know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews, not for the Jews. Of the Jews. God's promise to Abraham was not, you will receive a blessing. And all those other people that are not of your family, tough for them. No, God says, in you will all the families of the earth be blessed. Blessed. 
And they forgot that. They thought it was all about them, that they were the blessed ones, and too bad for the Gentiles. Salvation is of the Jews. Messiah was coming through the Jews. And Messiah is not just for the Jews. Messiah, or the Christ, is for everyone. Because God so loved the world. See, as Christians, we can fall into that same trap. We can think that God loves us because we're Christians. He loves us especially because we're the best Christians. We're not like those liberal Christians or those whacked out Christians. We sing hymns. I mean, there's all kinds of things that we can hang on ourselves to pat ourselves on the back, right? And forget, yeah, we are supposed to be the channels of salvation. And God loves the world that's outside of here. We're supposed to be conduits of what kind of water? Dead water? Living water. But too often, we're conduits of dead water. And not even much of that. Maybe a trickle or two. Verse 23. So important. The hour is coming. And now is. It's here. Even right now. When the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship him. True worship isn't happening in Herod's temple in Jerusalem with all the animal sacrifices. God said it stinks to high heaven. That's not what I want. I want mercy and I want justice. But no, that's not what's happening there. And it's not happening in Gerizim either. No, God is seeking true worshipers who will worship him in spirit, not in the flesh. So much of what I see that is called worship today in Christianity is, looks like an exercise in the flesh. I, that's the only way I can say it. I mean, if I can't tell the difference between that and a non-Christian rock concert, something's wrong. And truth. Verse 24, God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. And the woman said to him, Well, I know Messiah's coming. I may not know much. And I may have a real poor track record with marriage. In fact, the people in my own town make me come out here to get water. I may not be much, but I know this. My Redeemer is coming. That's what Job said when they were putting Job down, saying, oh, you must be a terrible sinner. Look at your life. Look at what's happened to you. Well, I know my Redeemer lives. 
I know Messiah is coming, who is the Christ. And when he comes, he'll tell us everything. Maybe it's not Gerizim, and maybe it's not even Jerusalem. I don't know. But Messiah's coming for me. The first person he reveals himself to is this woman right here. I who speak to you am he. He left his disciples even questioning and wondering. But this woman, a Samaritan, a woman, and a woman with a poor track record, he reveals himself to her. At this point, his disciples came and they marveled that he was talking with a woman. Yet no one said, what are you looking for? Or why are you talking with her? The woman left her water pot and went her way into the city and said to them, what do you think she said to them? What is she filled with now? Living water. You can't contain it. And if you can contain it, you're filled with dead water. Time to get some living water. Jesus is the source. And it gushes out. Come see a man who told me all the things I ever did. Well, no, he, he didn't. He just told you about your five husbands and the guy you're living with. I'm sure you've done a lot more than that. But to her, it was everything. Her heart was exposed and it was opened. Now, that's the amazing thing about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's job in the world is to convince us of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Ooh, that sounds bad. That's a downer. Why is he called the comforter? Why isn't he called the beater-upper of my soul? I mean, he's going he's to expose my sin and he's going to say, and this is righteous, and you're not. And there, not only that, there's judgment to come. That's not the way the Holy Spirit comes. That's the way the devil treats you, the accuser of the brethren, accuses you day and night before the throne of God, and doesn't even have to lie. He is a liar, but on this one, he just tells the truth about you. But the Holy Spirit, when he reveals your sin to you, it's like, oh, because along with it comes charis, grace, and agapeo, love. He told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? And then they went out of the city and they came to him. And in the meantime, his disciples said to him, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you don't know about. All of a sudden, he is energized. Because of what is taking place. Therefore the disciples said to one another, Did anybody bring him any food? How, where did he get the food? And Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Do you not say there are still four months and then comes the harvest? Look, open your eyes and look. The fields are white for harvest 
right now. What is he looking at? The people. He will say this again in Matthew chapter 9. At the end of Matthew chapter 9, as he sees all these people, and he says, pray the Lord of the harvest that he sends laborers into his harvest field because they're white to harvest. And now Christians are gathering together in their little hunker-down movements. They're cloistering themselves away from the world because, oh, the world's so bad. It's always been bad. We've got to protect ourselves. I need... I need, I need survival food. I need guns. I need cases of vodka so I can use those for trading stock. I won't drink it, but I, I trade them for food later on. You think I'm kidding? No, you know I'm not kidding. Seriously, folks. If there ever was a time to be a missionary, now is it. You don't have to be a village missionary and go somewhere else. We are living in a dark corner of the world. Right here. Let's skip on down to verse 39. And many of the Samaritans of the city believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified, he told me all that I ever did. Just because of this woman's word, a woman that they had looked down themselves, the, the despised Samaritans looking down on the most despised of them, this woman heard out of her mouth a testimony that was flowing with living water, and many of them believed. So when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. What Jew would stay in Samaria for two days? I thought you had to go through Samaria because you needed to get to Galilee. This is the extra two days you could have saved. You could have gone around. That would take two more days, but now you're wasting two days in Samaria? And, of course, we know it's not a waste, right? Would you stay two days in the worst part of town? Pick the worst place in the United States, the place with the most violence, the place where nobody even wants to drive through. Would you go there and have Bible club for two days? That's what Jesus did. And many more believed because of his own word. And then they said to the woman, because they're still putting her down. Well, now we believe, not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him. And we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. Now, I might be reading into that more than what is really there. But I do see this as like, yeah, will we believe in him, but not because of what you said. This is not the end of the story. I do a little Paul Harvey on you here. Luke chapter 9. They're on their way now from Galilee. And they're heading back up to Jerusalem. Got to get there to the Passover. Jesus' face is set not only for the Passover, but he's heading to the cross. They come through Samaria and they come to a town. 
of Samaria. People don't want to have anything to do with him because, well, he's a Jew, and he's on his way to Jerusalem. And, and, and they won't receive him. They won't give them any sustenance or let him stay or anything. So John and James, his brother, says, you want us to call fire down out of heaven? Like Elijah did? John, you were with me at the well. And you saw living water gushing out of this woman and the Samaritans of Sychar coming and believing in me. John, don't you know you're not of that spirit? the calling fire down spirit. How many of you, honestly, without raising your hand, let the Holy Spirit work in your heart, have looked at the political atmosphere that is going on here today in this country as though this country matters more than any of the other countries of the world? To God, it doesn't. But you've said, I wish I could just call fire down out of heaven. Maybe you didn't use those words. But maybe you, like some Christians, have said, oh, I'm, I'm praying against this government. I pray that God just wipes them out because these gas prices are just too high. You don't know what spirit you're on. Well, maybe you do, but it's not the Holy Spirit. Fast forward not to our day and age, but to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 8, and you can read this later. Jesus had said to them, you're going to be martyros for me. That is, witnesses is the way it's translated, but the word is martyr. You're going to be martyrs for me. You're going to give your testimony, came to mean it's going to cost you your life. You will be witnesses for me in Judea, or in Jerusalem, first of all, right here in Jerusalem, then Judea, and then Samaria. Ooh, ick. Yes, Samaria. And then to the uttermost part of the world. That's where you live, by the way. This is, you can't get much further away from Jerusalem than here, unless your feet are wet out in the Pacific. And so what do they do? They have their own little cloistered hallelujah breakdown. They started out in one accord on the day of Pentecost, and they never got out of that Honda. They're right there in their one accord. They're having a great time. 3,000 are added to the church. They're meeting in homes and everything like that. They're sharing everything they have. Oh, it's, this is just great. We don't have to go anywhere. If people want to get saved, they'll come to us, right? And so God says, well, no. I got this guy. His name's Saul. And he sends his servant Saul to persecute the church. Saul will later become the Apostle Paul, but right now he is the agent of get him out of Dodge. And so they leave, they're scattered, and Philip, who was supposed to be a deacon, he was one of the deacons, he had a, had a Greek name, so it kind of worked out good because he was supposed to take care of the Grecian widows. And Philip goes down to Samaria, and because he's filled with living water, he starts preaching about Jesus. And they get saved. There's a whole bunch of them that come to Christ. Why? 
It was a field that had been white for harvest for a long time. And then the other apostles, they're saying, oh, man, we better get down there so that we can get in on some of that. And then God takes Philip and catches him away and puts him on a road. Now, I don't even, this is a miracle. God can do teleportation. He can do that. Philip finds himself on this road, and this chariot is going by. And there's this guy in the chariot who's reading the scriptures. He's an Ethiopian. He's actually, he was kind of one of the, one of the high guys in Queen Candace court, and he's um, reading out of Isaiah. And Philip hears that, and he says, oh, well, another chance to be an evangelist. Another chance to tell the good news. And so he runs alongside the chariot and says, you understand what you're reading? Well, no, how can I unless somebody explains it to me? And so Philip explains it to him, and that man is baptized, and he becomes a Christian. So Philip leaves off evangelizing the masses of Samaria to reach one guy, and that one guy goes back and now the gospel spreads through North Africa. And this is what evangelism is. Ralph asked me a question, texting. Well, like, what is evangelism? Because you talked about a missionary, and, and you talked about, you know, pastor and preacher, but, but what, is, what is an evangelist? Remember what I told you? These are not titles. They are descriptors. In Ephesians chapter 4, it says, Then he gave some to be, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, and he gave some to be is added in in your New King James. The reason is, is because that's the Greek construction. It doesn't mean he gave some who were going to be called apostles. He gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be teachers, or some to be pastors and teachers. To do that, it's not the title, it's the doing. What is an evangelist? The title that Philip had, if he had one, was deacon, and yet he didn't even have that title. That's just the job he was given. And that's the job he did until God put him in a place where he was doing the work of an evangelist. Which we should all do. What is an evangelist? It's a person who does euangelizo. It's a person who spreads the gospel. And it's all of our job. And that's why Timothy, as a missionary, is reminded about Paul, in your ministry, be sure to do the work of an evangelist. We have a lot of people that have titles in Christianity. They're dry cows in a stall. We need to get the milkers in. We need to get the producers in. Marilyn doesn't like me to do the farming thing, but I, I just got to. <clears throat> Every dry cow that came through my milking parlor cost me time, cost me grain, and then she went out and then she beat up one of my heifers. That's why they needed to be taken out and put in the dry cow lot. 
that doesn't mean ship to the hamburger joint. It means, you know, so that they would come fresh and have a calf, and maybe someone went to the hamburger lot. But at any rate, we got a lot of people that got titles that aren't doing the job. Shepherd, pastor, poimane. Supposed to be taking care of the sheep. We've got Caruso, preachers, that are supposed to be preaching the word. Not getting their sermons offline or online. We have people that have titles. There's people today who call themselves apostles. But the word means sent one. They sent themselves. They weren't sent by Jesus, and there are 12 of those. We lost one, but there was another one added. I'll let you figure out who that is. You're called as a Christian to be filled with living water as a conduit of living water to a world that needs living water so that they can be born again of the water and of the blood. Let's pray. Lord, I think sometimes some of us have been Christians so long we got oldy and moldy. We've forgotten what it meant to be filled with your presence to overflowing. We've got stale. We're going through the motions. We dried up inside. If we do have water, it's dead water. Nothing that really should be shared. Renew in us a right spirit, a clean heart. Fill us again anew with your spirit, with spiritual truth, with living water, so that we in these last ebbing moments of human history can reach those around us who so desperately need you. And I ask it in Jesus' name, amen.